Hi, everybody. Thanks for joining us for another edition of Hold My Dream, where we navigate the news and politics with a chaser of civility. I'm your host, Jen, inviting you to grab your favorite beverage, sit back, and imagine with us how to create a new American identity together. Welcome to this week's Hold My Drink podcast. Today, we have Neil Shenvey. He's a PhD in theoretical chemistry from Berkeley. He's a writer, and he's a member of the Summit Church in North Carolina. And before we get started, my question for everyone is always, what are we having for this conversation today? Neil, did you bring anything to the table? I did, but it's just a you know generic Target brand seltzer water. So I, I'm sorry to disappoint you. I, I have to stay you know coherent throughout this conversation. Well, I'll pop it. There you go. You hear that? <laughs> that that, that sound was worth it. Right? There you go. <laughs> we'll pretend it's a beer. That's okay. It, well, that, that doesn't have to be. Whatever. David, did you bring anything? I did. I brought bourbon. I'm actually a scotch drinker, but I had bourbon and I thought, you know what? Today I'm going to do bourbon. <laughs> and now it's after Passover, so you can do bourbon. I can do bourbon. I can do mm. scotch, pretty much anything else. You can do it all. Uh, well, I am celebrating with a glass of wine. I've been waiting for this conversation to open some Pinot Noir. So there we go. Yeah. Um, so. Neil, thank you for joining us today. We're really excited. I know um, David's been following you. So David, take it away. Yeah, so so Neil, um, rumor has it that you are one of the foremost experts on critical race theory and critical theories on this sort of um, deep academic uh, underpinnings of this ideology that we're seeing play out in the public domain. Tell us a little bit about the relationship between the theoretical things that you study so closely and few others really know the way that you do and what we're actually seeing out in the world. Sure. So I don't want to call myself an expert because I might get canceled again. So uh, again, say that I've, uh, yeah, oh, you didn't hear this. Well, we get oh. this story for another day, but yeah, <laughs> um, I'll just say that I have spent several years now reading pretty extensively on these topics on the critical race theory, on queer theory, on post-colonialism, critical social justice. And so uh, the term that I think is becoming prominent today is critical social justice, which is actually, I think, a very good way to describe what we're seeing in the culture. And really, it encompasses a lot of ideas that have been floating around scholarship for 10, 20, 30 years now, maybe 40 years, if you go back to CRT. Uh, so So what is... Critical social justice. This term was popularized by Robin D'Angelo in her book, Is Everyone Really Equal? And so I like to talk about it in terms of four main ideas. The first is the idea that culture is divided into oppressors and oppressed along lines of race, class, gender, sexuality, physical ability, uh, age, uh, nationality, and so forth. That's the first idea. The second idea is that oppression is subtle and insidious, it's not uh, overt coercion, tyranny, and cruelty. It's embedded in our systems, in our norms, in our values. And so anytime a a dominant group, an oppressor group, imposes their ideas on culture in in subtle ways, that's oppression. So uh, when whites impose whiteness as the norm, that's a form of oppression. When men uh, impose the patriarchal values on culture, that's oppression. When heterosexuals impose heteronormativity, uh, heterosexuality as the norm in society, that's oppression. That's the second idea. It's called hegemonic power. Those groups have hegemonic power. The third idea is lived experience that we ought to um, 
give authority to and defer to oppressed groups because through their experience of oppression, through their lived experience of oppression, they've attained a, a unique access to truth or a better access to truths about their oppression. So if we're part of an oppressor group, we really need to center those voices and listen to them and defer to them on matters pertaining to society and justice because privileged people, so the theory goes, are blinded. They tend to be blinded by their privilege. And finally, the, the raison d'etre for this whole project is social justice, which they would define as the elimination of all forms of social oppression, and whether it's racism, sexism, classism, transgender, uh, uh, transphobia, heterosexism. These are all various forms that they want to, uh, systems they want to dismantle. And so I think the second part was then how does that intersect with the Christian faith or my Christian faith? Yeah, well, so I, yeah. I hadn't gotten to that yet, but okay. yeah, that was my next question. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay, there you go. I anticipated it. So, <laughs> right. uh, yeah, you know, I for, for I became a Christian in graduate school um, through knowing my future wife, Christina, and through going to church with her, just through reading a lot of C.S. Lewis. I loved his books even prior to becoming a Christian. And uh, and so and, and when I became a Christian, just sort of realizing that I um, I was not a good person, I needed to rescue and that God was offering it in Jesus. And that's when I became a Christian. And so I got really interested in what's called apologetics. That's defending Christianity through reason and evidence. And I was a scientist. So a lot of people wanted to hear me talk about well, how do you how can you be a scientist and also be a religious person, you know, how can you believe these crazy things like miracles and also be a scientist? So for years, I was reading books by by atheist authors like Dawkins, uh, Jerry Coyne, uh, Sam Harris, Christopher Hitchens, um, and, and, and reading books by Christian scholars and trying to show people that you don't have to abandon reason uh, and evidence in order to embrace Christianity. Well, that was, you know, 10, 15 years. I was happy in my little uh, little bubble. And I really was apolitical. I was not a culture warrior. I was not concerned about how you voted because my main concern was, was religious, was theological in nature. But then around 2014 or 15 or so, Black Lives Matter exploded. And suddenly I began hearing these ideas coming from people that I knew personally and from public figures that just sounded a little bit off. I couldn't, you know, I'm apolitical again. I'm not following who you're voting for, but it sounded like just, the things they were talking about didn't seem to square with what I thought was basic Christian theology. And I'll give you examples later. But um, around that time, I met my collaborator, Dr. Pat Sawyer. Now, he has a PhD in education and cultural studies. His dissertation was on critical pedagogy, which is one of the fields within this umbrella of critical theory. And so we began to uh, collaborate quite a lot. We've written articles for some major Christian publications. And yeah, we, we have become more and more concerned with how these ideas from these very secular um, disciplines have really begun to infiltrate not just the sort of liberal Christian churches, the mainline churches that have kind of uh, abandoned many historical beliefs of the Christian faith already. I'm not being pejorative here. I'm just saying they, they've, they've, they're overtly progressive. They're saying we're going to change the these historic beliefs to get, get with the times, become modern. Um, but even among professing conservative evangelicals, not politically, theologically conservative, I'm seeing these ideas pop up again and again. And that, that's really alarming because in, in my opinion, they're, they're just antithetical to the basic Christian view of reality. And what you're saying is now that you join forces with your former opponents like Sam Harris and Richard Dawkins yeah. to fight this, uh, this even more 
dangerous force. You know, that's the weirdest part about this. This thing that um, atheist Peter Bogosian calls the great realignment. And he's as shocked as any of us. You know, I, I right. see Dawkins on Twitter making sense. And I'm like, wait, wait a minute, we're supposed what to happened? be enemies. <laughs> yeah, we're supposed to be you know, ideological enemies. And yet he, he and Jerry Coyne is another one of the new atheists who wrote, I have this book on my shelf called um, Fact Versus Faith, right? He's, they were vocally anti- theistic, anti-religious, and yet in the last five years, they've realized, oh my gosh, there's an even greater threat here than than faith, but it's this, I would actually argue, maybe they would agree, this other faith. (laughs) They were worried about religious faith, but now we're seeing maybe a different kind of, a new religious faith Mm -hmm. that they're seeing is more prominent, more influential, and maybe even more dangerous than Christianity. So yeah, it's very, so again, Peter Bogosian and I have exchanged some emails, I think, and he, he and my friend Pat have talked a little bit, but he's sort of also agreeing that, yeah, we're now seeing this alignment, not between say uh, the, the, not the old axis was, you know, either liberal or conservative liberals versus conservatives. But now what we're seeing is essentially woke versus anti-woke and the anti-woke camp includes liberals, moderates, conservatives, atheists, Christians, but all people who affirm basically what unites all of us, I think, is a commitment to objective truth, right? Which is bizarre. Like, really, I mean, are we seeing a resurgence of postmodernism that would sort of deny or, or problematize objective truth claims? And it's more complicated than that. But I, I think that is a, a serious uh, divergence between how. The, the old school atheists and the old school Christians and the old school liberals and classical liberals and moderates and conservatives viewed reality and how this new movement is viewing truth and, right. and really it's it's not you shared you shared you shared a common operating system in a way yes, yeah. liberalism was the common operating system that said we we can understand what reality uh, gives us and this is a threat to that very understanding that the former argument was predicated on. And well, the funny thing too is that the way, if you talk to the people on the social justice side, the critical social justice side, they'll say, here's what unites you guys, besides being old white men. I mean, I'm not white, but whatever, close enough, you know. Uh, what unites you, terrible people on the anti woke side, is not uh, besides being terrible old white men, but it's, uh, it's the enlightenment. You're just modernists, you're rationalists, you're positivists, you, you, you are obsessed with reason and evidence and, and, thinking of certainty and the power of human reason. The, they'll, they'll say that, that and they'll cast the, the, that same, they'll, they'll paint us all with that same brush. The, the supreme strangeness here to me is that while I think Dawkins and Coyne, uh, maybe Dennett and Harris would, would wear that label of rationalist proudly. They'd say, absolutely, we, are, we're, we believe in scientism in some sense. We believe in uh, the human power of human reason uh, and, and modernism, modernity, the enlightenment values. Now. I would actually say, well, no, I've always disagreed with you in in a sense that I don't think that human reason is the be all and end all of rationality. I don't think human reason is sufficient as the enlightenment would would affirm. I don't think that, uh, you know, that we have to rule out the supernatural. So in a sense, I'm actually going back to the pre-modern view of reality, but even the pre-moderns, people like Augustine, right? Old school Christian theologians from, from millennia ago still believed that their human reason was a real thing. They didn't reduce everything to power dynamics. And so the real difference is not that we're, we're all modernist rationalists, the children of the enlightenment. I think the real difference is that 
we all believe that truth, objective truth exists and can be known or approximated through human reason. Whereas the critical social justice crowd tends to see human reason itself and objective truth claims as bids for power. They're seeing everything through the lens of power dynamics. That's the difference. It's not, it's not enlightenment versus you know, sophisticated post-enlightenment thinkers. It's really people who think we can approach objective truth through through reason, not, in t- not only through reason, but through and those who really would would deconstruct reason itself as a bid for power. Yeah, I I've got a question for you. I really you you kind of touched on this already that anti-racism is its own um, or this critical social justice, if you will, is its own religion. Uh, as someone who's also a, a practicing Christian and Protestant. Um, I wonder sometimes, though, whether it's Christianity or Judaism or, or Muslim or any to any any religion, do you think that this is coming and bubbling up in our society because we've kind of lost that faith? I mean, we've lost faith. Uh, we've lost something to believe in, and this is filling that that place that I think all kind of humans feel like they need something to. To believe in whether it's religion and we're all here religious so we can talk about religion or just something else um do you do you think that there's any role of us becoming more secular to us latching on to critical social justice as a new religion of sorts yeah i think that's definitely part of the equation you know, i'm not a cultural commentator i can't give you like a speculation about what caused this trend I, but i do think part of it is the increasing secularization of culture and you know postmodernism old school the high postmodernism of the 70s maybe in the 80s they were they were very they, they just wanted to deconstruct everything deconstruct all meta narratives and so they wanted to dismantle grand stories like marxism christianity judaism all of these grand sweeping stories about reality they wanted to show that they were all basically bids for power they were they were they were arrogant, making these universal claims. They wanted, and that included Marxism, by the way. So they, they were skeptical of all of those narratives. So we got rid of those as a society, a culture sort of, except for you know, some pockets of those crazy redneck Christians and Jews and Muslims, whatever, in various uh, holes in the ground. But the, you know, the, the elites kind of said, we're going we're to we're, we're, we're embrace secularism and this postmodern deconstruction. But then what we realized quickly is the, that there's a God-shaped hole in our hearts, right? There, we need some kind of transcendent meaning. Human beings crave a story. G.K. Chesterton, right. the famous Catholic theologian said, I think he said something like, I, 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 um, I observed life first as a story. And if there's a story, there's a storyteller. Mm-hmm. So his idea was that he just experienced life as a story. And I think all of us do. You know, we all of us have ways to explain what we experience, explain relationships, explain what's wrong with the world. And if you deconstruct all those stories, whether it's Marxism or Christianity or Islam or Buddhism, you leave a vacuum and you try, you try to fill it with, you know, sex, drugs, and rock and roll. And you realize it's not, that's not a story. That's just experiences. It's, it's sensuality. But, but when someone gives you then a story to latch onto, you crave it. And what critical social justice did around 2010, according to Helen Pluckers and James Lindsay, uh, it, it became a, a meta narrative itself. It became a story about reality that went not from. So Christians believe in the story of reality for Christians is creation, fall, redemption, restoration. Right? God created the whole universe, created human beings, 
uh, to love him and worship him. We rebelled against him in the Garden of Eden. We fell into sin and rebellion. And then God sent Israel to be a light to the nations and eventually sent Jesus himself, the Jewish Messiah, to rescue humanity. And then one day he'll return and all things will be made new. That's a, that's, that's a great story. I mean, I don't care if you're a, an atheist. That's an incredible story. You know, all these stories of sacrifice and, and, and love and, and devotion. That's the story of reality for Christians. Now, you're like, well, it's a fake story. Okay, fine, but it's a story. When you take away that story and the story of Marxism, Marxism says there's a conflict between good and evil, the oppressors and the oppressed. We're going to rise up and free people to be, uh, to be, be relieved of all this oppression and marginalization. People can seize control and live fulfilled lives now and end, end poverty. That's a story. When you're like, no, get rid of all those stories, there's a vacuum. And into that vacuum steps critical social justice, which says, no, the story is this. Rather than having the bourgeois and the proletariat be our good guys and bad guys, we have oppressor groups, whites, men, heterosexuals, the rich, and then the oppressed groups. And that's, that's the struggle between them for power. And we can solve that problem. That's our problem. But we can solve it through activism. And we're, we're heading to the promised land of equity, the land of milk and honey, diversity, equity, inclusion, social justice. And that's also a story. And it gives people a sense of meaning and purpose. And then the last thing I'll say that it does is it gives people a sense of righteousness. You know, all of us feel like uh, in this, in the, the, my, here's my Christian side coming out. We feel like Adam and Eve in the garden did. We feel naked. We feel shame. We feel exposed because we know things are wrong with us. So we'd want, we want to cover that up in various ways. You can cover it up through, again, through pleasures. You can cover it up through, ironically, religion. You can do all the right things, be good, be really righteous to cover yourself and to feel better about yourself. Uh, but critical social justice has a different way. You do the work. You pledge to be better, do better, right? You read the right books. You tweet the right tweets. You, you, know, you, you lament your privilege. And you're making atonement for your sin. And you're, you're washing your hands in the labor, right? And, and you feel good about yourself again. So it's, it's the way that it's the, the mean. And this is, by the way, this is not my own, entirely my own thinking. John McWhorter, who's a liberal linguist at Columbia, uh, Elizabeth Corey is a writer at First Things. Uh, there are a number of people from all over the spectrum. I mean, Lindsay and Pluckrose, who were both atheists. We've all sort of realized, yeah, this is uh, uh, the secular version of essentially the Christian gospel, only with different problems, different sin, different atonement, different solution, different different heaven and earth. So, yeah. So, yeah, go ahead. So I want to uh, uh, offer an alternative because I, I'm actually, I'm a... A traditional Jew, but perhaps um, theologically secular Jew. Mm. Um, and um, I yesterday I was on the phone with a former colleague of mine who is an Orthodox Jew, and he's right now organizing to deal with a CRT initiative in his school system. And he was asking for advice, and we got into one of our typical arguments. Um, and and his argument was um, that that the problem is, and pretty much the case you just made, that that we've whenever you lose God, you end up with some horrible secular ideology that wreaks havoc on society. Mm -hmm. And that what we really need to do is go back to a Christian and Jewish notion of God and restore that into our body politic. Um, my interpretation is, well, yes, that is true. Uh, we are rapidly becoming more secular society, um, but that the solution is not to return to Christianity or Judaism in the religious sense. I mean, as I said, I'm very culturally and traditionally Jewish, um, but rather to sort of impart 
critical thinking skills to the massive at, at, and scale up as quickly as we can. Because simply put, we're not going to be able to reclaim those traditional forms of understanding and religiosity that we once had. And we may not be able to reclaim, by the way, critical thinking. And if that's the case, we're really in trouble if we can't do either one of those two things. But what is your view about that counter argument that I'm making about critical thinking really being the, 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 the void that needs to be filled? So that is definitely one. I mean, so when you ask where did this come from, why is it so pervasive? Why is it so uh, it's a, a tenuous hold on people? Or a ten, it's a, you know, God has hooked some people. Why? And there are many reasons. Again, one, it would be secularization leaves a vacuum. But another one, yeah, I think that people are just not good at thinking critically. I, I don't know why. Again, I'm not going to go on some tirade about the education system. I do homeschool my kids, so I'm teaching them critical thinking. But uh, so I don't know. I'm not sure. I think we do see um, with social media, maybe, and just the, the constant 24 hour news cycle, the importance of narrative. This is actually goes back to the sort of postmodern ideas. But we do see that both sides have narratives they're telling. And we've lost the ability to evaluate facts apart from a narrative. We just say, does this incident fit? Which narrative does it fit into? We don't ask what actually happen? What is actually true? Just say, what, what's convenient for my narrative? What is the support? And I ignore things that don't fit my narrative, and I embrace things that do fit my narrative. So that's, again, that's terrible critical thinking skills, but I think maybe, again, that's a product of just living in an age where we're bombarded by news all the time, and increasingly, the news outlets are just telling stories. They're not, they're not even attempting to, to conceal their political allegiances. They just want to support their team. And so you really have to work. I mean, for me, I tell people this in my talks, just don't watch the news. I don't watch the news. I read books because I, and I figure that if anything important uh, happens, then in a year or two, I'll read about it in, in a book that I read. So I, I, I just think that's a good way to cultivate and hone critical thinking skills is simply to turn off this stream of consciousness uh, news cycle and, and focus on things, carefully constructed arguments and what I also do is I read both sides. So I lately I've been reading like ninety percent critical theorists, progressives, and atheists. Like I, I you know, ten percent of what I read are fellow Christians, evangelicals, conservatives. Just because I figure that's where my cognitive biases lie. Right. My my inclination is to embrace that story, that those things that support that worldview. So I want to hear more loudly from the other side and figure out what's not. What am I missing? because of my inherent inclinations. But yeah, I, I, if you want to promote critical thinking, amen. I, I'm all for that. You know, you gave, uh, you said that there were some examples of why um, Christianity doesn't match with critical social justice. Can you give some of those where you think that there's a mismatch there? Yeah, there, there's so many. I mean, it's hard to know where to start. I mean, first of all, just sort of obviously, they both really are meta narratives. You know, you can't, you can't have two meta narratives. Meta narrative is the, the overarching story for reality, and so you're either going to see our main problem, for example, as sin, rebellion against God, or you're going to see it as oppression, which is a sin, but it's not the only sin. So, but which is going to be the the main problem that human beings have? What's the solution to the problem? Is it going to be redemption through Jesus, or is it going to be activism? Where are we heading? Are we heading for a new heavens and new earth? Are we heading to society where diversity, equity, and inclusion have become you know, a core feature of society. Those are, again, they're taking you in two different directions. And so you, you just, you'll be forced to choose between which reality do I think I'm living in? You can't really live in both. Um, another, maybe the, the second biggest problem 
is that of uh, epistemology, meaning how do we know the truth? So critical social justice emphasizes lived experience as the, the main way that you know truth. And, and in fact, if you tell someone that they, they share their lived experience with you as a person of color, as a woman, or as an LGBTQ person, and you say, well, you know, I, I, I hear what you're saying. I, I totally believe your testimony about your own experiences. But if you look at the data, the actual surveys and studies and scholarship on this issue, your lived experiences, while they're true for you, they don't reflect actual objective reality for most people, according to the data. Well, critical social justice says that's because the data is, a, is pr was created by old white men to perpetuate white supremacy and patriarchy and heteronormativity. So, they, so critical social justice scholars don't really, almost at all, do really careful analysis of the data because, again, they're working primarily on these counter narratives. The counter narratives tell us what reality is really like. Now, how does that play out in religion? Well, it doesn't work because the first thing you'll realize in living in a pluralistic society is that people's lived experiences when it comes to theology are just incompatible. You know, a Sufi Muslim might say, well, my lived experience is that I've, you know, I've, I know Islam is true. A uh, charismatic Christian might say, well, I've experienced the Holy Spirit. I know Christianity is true. An atheist says, I've experienced any of that stuff. It's all garbage. I know it's all false. They all can't be right. We can't, you know, we can coexist, meaning we can all get along and not kill each other. We can't, we all contradict each other. So we can't exalt lived experience unless we're willing to jettison the laws of logic, things like the law of non-contradiction. And when it comes for Christians, what that means is Christians, at least Protestants, have always said scripture, the Bible, has to be the ultimate authority when it comes to all of our beliefs about God and about reality, basically. And you can't have that, the Bible, be your ultimate authority and also the experience be your ultimate authority because they're to conflict. I, what, what do you do when people say, no, you know, my lived experience of my say, gender identity or my sexuality, uh, I just know this is how God created me. And we look at the Bible and say, well, it looks like the Bible contradicts that. We can't have both. And so we're going to be forced to choose what is going to be our ultimate authority. Um, and there are other, another big one. This is, I think, what we're seeing in culture as well outside the church, but it's, it's really clear in the church too, is that Christianity emphasizes human unity in many different ways. So, and the number one, the doctrine of the imago dei, this is in, in Genesis 1, 2, and well, 1 and 2. Um, but the idea that God made us in his image, male and female, he created them. So Christians throughout history and, and Jews following that tradition would say, you know, we are individually important because we're made in God's image. That's why we have dignity. It's why we have value. That's why you can't treat people like objects because we're not objects. We're not like other, either, even other animals, not like rocks. We can't be used as a means to an end. We are ends. We are made in God's image. So that but that connects people across lines of race, class, gender, ethnicity, sexuality, et cetera. The second doctrine is Genesis 3. We're all united in sin. We've all rebelled against our creator. And so I can't look at that guy. Oh, that guy's the worst. He's, a, he's an old white male. Well, he's a sinner and so are you. And so there's this humility that comes with saying, uh, Marisol Wolf, who's a Yale theologian, calls it solidarity in sin. And he came out of um, the Balkans during the genocide there. And he said, I can look at the most vicious, brutal, militant uh, ethnic cleanser and say, in our hearts, we both have the same malady and affliction. So I can even find solidarity with the ultimate oppressor. And yet critical social justice would say, no, you're not oppressor, you're oppressed. 
So that's a second doctrine of solidarity within the Christian within Christianity. And then finally, Christianity says you all need one savior. There's not like there's not like a savior for men and a savior for women and a savior for Jews and a savior for Gentiles. There's Jesus. And you all come in then to the church as brothers and sisters. I and mean, this is what the New Testament talks about. It constantly calls Christian brethren, brothers, it's familial language. And that's impossible to square with, a, with an ideology that divides you into oppressors and oppressed. I mean, I can't walk into a church and be like, oh, an oppressed Christian, oh, an oppressor Christian, an oppressor Christian, oppressed Christian. The first thing I think is people that are united to me in creation, in sin, and in redemption. Um, and I think when you embrace critical social justice, you're seeing society fracture and balkanize as we divide it into these classes along lines of race, class, and gender. You know, so I, I think that there is this divide, though, too, between um, Christians who take the Bible literally at face value, everything it says, and people who also question. Um, and so I think, you know, a lot of people would say, and I feel like this is where people have turned away from religion, uh, because we, we all are sinners and we all make mistakes and that there's a lot of human fallibility within the church. And, and so we like to point that out. Um, and it's all true. But I think that a lot of people see that in the in history, we have used religion. We'll, t we'll talk about Christianity specifically, but in general, I mean, not just Christianity as a tool to separate and divide. So, I mean, Christianity during you know, slavery, for example, was used as a tool between the oppressed and the oppressors. I think, you know, a more current age, people who, particularly those who uh, interpret the Bible literally on the LBGTQ plus side see, okay, well, you know, now I feel that I'm oppressed by the Bible because it doesn't include me in, yeah. in the, 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 um, in the text. Mm -hmm. And so I see where Christianity can be an area that segregates us or religion is more generally religion is an area that segregates us depending on how we interpret the religion and or for Christianity specifically the Bible. Sure. And I think it's inevitable that, I mean, Tim Keller, who's a pastor in New York City, talks about how it's impossible to not have exclusivity in your community, in your ideology. And you, to have a community, you have to exclude somebody or you have no community, right? So communities are centered around something. So if I want to join a synagogue, right, but I'm not Jewish, and I say, actually, I think it's completely false. So they're like, well, you can't really be in our synagogue. Why do you hate me? No, we don't hate you. But we're kind of about being Jewish here. So and the funny thing is people that say, well, not me, I'm totally tolerant. No, you're not. You're not tolerant of people that you consider intolerant. So when it comes to like LGBTQ issues, for example, Christians are seen as the intolerant ones. And I actually would say, yeah, I, I agree. Actually, we are intolerant of things we think are sinful. And yet, so are you. you. You don't like us because you think we're intolerant. The question is not who's intolerant and who's inclusive. The question is, how do you treat people that you disagree with? So I think Christian, Christianity would say, we, I, I accept the charge, at least I do, that Christianity can be intolerant in the sense of saying some things are wrong, some things are good. What I would say is that Christianity has the resources to say, you know what, we, like I said, we, no matter how sinful you are, A, we're, you're still made in the image of God. B, I am also sinful. <laughs> so I don't have to look at you as, you're, I, I, the funny thing is, when you talk, when you look at people that are the extreme social justice warriors online, they strike you as crazy, wildly self-righteous. Isn't it amazing that they're they're like, I'm so tolerant, I hate you. 
<laughs> you're, you're, well, you're not that tolerant then. Whereas some not, and Christians can be equally intolerant and hateful, but at least I remember remind myself, no matter how much how sinful I, sinfully someone is behaving, and no matter how evilly they're behaving, doing actually terrible things, I look at my heart and say the same sin lives in your own heart. And so I can look at them not with anger and superiority, but saying, actually, Jesus talks about this. He says, you should look at yourself as the, uh, in the parable he gives of the Pharisee and tax collector. He says, the guy who says to God that, oh, I'm so good. I thank you. I'm so good. I'm not like that bad guy. God's not pleased with him. But the, the tax collector who says, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner, is the one that God accepts in the end. So anyway, I, I, I agree that there's differences in terms of interpretation of sexuality and things, but I wouldn't challenge the idea that we can ever have, we don't really have tolerant and intolerant people. We have various kinds of intolerant people. The question is how we treat each other. So you were recently canceled from a forum, or the forum was canceled, let's be fair, um, with uh, William James Jennings, mm -hmm. a, uh, an African-American uh, critical race thinker, I think. I mean, tell me a little bit more about him. Um, who uh, you were going to be in a courageous conversation. And when they learned more about who you were and what you stood for, they canceled the forum and apologized. Tell me what happened there. Fill in the blanks for us there. Well, it wasn't, I was exaggerating when I was saying I was canceled. Maybe I was technically, but it was fine. No hard feelings. So Willie James Jennings is a very well-known, renowned theologian who's a dean at Yale Divinity School. And he's a race scholar. He's written several books on race and Christianity. And so we were going to have a dialogue about race and uh, critical race, race in general, critical race theory specifically, the things he's written, I read three of his books and um, they're definitely there. I don't know if he's influenced by critical race theory, definitely some of the, the ways he thinks about race are, um, there's consonants with critical race theory. So we're going to just talk about um, these ideas and whether they're compatible with Christianity or not. But the, uh, the organization that sponsored the event uh, in their press release or their flyer had called me an expert in critical race theory and race. And people got really angry because they said, you're not an expert. He's just a chemist. And I, again, I plead guilty to that charge. You know, I'm not, I don't have a PhD in a relevant field. Um, but I, I do think, and so I had no hard feelings, but I do, what concerns me more is that this happens, it happens more and more often. And I feel like what we most need in this conversation is dialogue uh, because, and uh, the, a, a civil dialogue and dialogue that is grounded in evidence and reason. And I won't, I'm not going to obviously attribute, uh, impute this to Willie James Jennings as he didn't cancel the event um, and I'm not, or, or the organization involved. Uh, but I do think that critical social justice scholars like, for example, Robin D'Angelo and Ibram X. Kendi are notorious for avoiding dialogue. People have been trying for years now to get them to defend their claims um, and people with fair, you know yeah john mccord Coleman hughes people with relevant expertise people with uh, books of their own and just and then laying out their arguments saying look the things you're saying are just empirically false they will not engage in dialogue and now there are theoretical reasons for that, that i could go into but i think but that's troubling that no one is on the on that woke side is suspicious you know if i if i were part of a movement that just refused to dialogue with those who disagree with with us 
I would begin to get suspicious. I'd be like, what do we have to hide? Are, can our IDs not stand up to scrutiny? And so that 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 is, I think, a part of a larger trend in our culture that we are forgetting how to communicate, to dialogue right. across differences. Right. Well, you know, if you look at um, if you look at the famous Ezra Klein Sam Harris debate, I don't know if you ever heard that podcast. Yeah. It was it was fascinating because Sam Harris was relying on what he does best, which is you know reason and rationality, and Ezra Klein, who is a very smart, thoughtful guy, um, I disagree with on these issues, um, kept on insisting that we live in a white supremacist country. In other words, it wasn't, it, it wasn't an argument he was yeah. making. It was an observation he was making. It was and an assertion. That, yeah, it was an assertion. Yeah. And, um, and I, I it, it was a well eloquently put assertion, but it wasn't, but it was assertion. And so I think that's what we're, we're one of the reasons why there's just no discourse around here around this issue is that simply put, um, the people who support woke ideology or critical social justice ideology are actually just making a basic assertion about reality and are not making a set of arguments. And that's the hallmark of a worldview, right? So you have all of us have certain fundamental assumptions about reality. They're just they're just like as Sam Harris actually has said this in one of his books. He said, "How do you?" How do you provide evidence to someone who doesn't believe their beliefs should be based on evidence? What evidence will convince them they ought to base their beliefs on evidence? There is any. He has an assumption, and I agree with it, thinks we should base our beliefs on evidence. But he can't provide you can't you can't by definition provide evidence for that assumption. So there there are things like that. Um, there are lots of things. For example, how do you know that you're not part of the matrix right now? How do you know all the, the experiences, sights and sounds and smells and tastes are not just part of the matrix? You're living in a computer simulator. You don't know that. You can't give me evidence to show that because all the evidence you appeal to could be part of the matrix. Um, and there are other issues that are more complicated in philosophy. But the bottom line is that we, but but we're we're seeing that these I, this critical social justice has many of those ideas that are functioning at that level. They don't appeal to evidence in the normal sense. They don't appeal to reason in the normal sense. They are base foundational presuppositions. You know, I've got to, like, it's interesting to me, you know, David and I were talking offline, how we've been trying to get people who think differently than us on this podcast. And mm -hmm. when we ask, there's been several times where we just don't get a response, you know, mm -hmm. but I've got an experience for people who are on the opposite side, on the more conservative side too. So I'm a part of Braver Angels, mm -hmm. and that's an organization that's meant to depolarize America and, you know, red, blue, basically is how yeah. they ca categorize people. And getting, now granted, I live in Austin, Texas, which is, you know, a little blue bubble, but getting reds to speak out is damn near impossible. And I think the fear is on either side, no one wants to be, and you know, David Urshot said this to us in, in our podcast, everyone is afraid of being judged. And so they don't want to put their selves on the line when they think that they're going to be um, shamed or blamed. And of course, that's not our intention at all. Our intention is actually to listen and to learn. But but that we've become so polarized that if you are a conservative or let's just say red, you know, for lack of better terms, invited on a blue show, you're going to feel self-conscious and vice versa. And so I see that happening on both sides. And, and, it, and it makes me sad because we're not having what you expressed earlier, Neil is that important dialogue that yeah. leads to the critical thinking. That's where we're, we're missing, you know, we're missing each other. 
one of the things I think it's happened that's responsible for that is again that we're our, we're in these information silos. So so red people read red authors and blue people read blue authors only. And you can't hone your critical thinking skills when everything you're consuming tells you the same thing. You can only, if you read broadly from both sides, you're forced to think critically because they're telling you opposite things. You have to say, wait a minute, who's lying to me? Which statement, which claim is closer to the truth? But if you only consume red books, red podcasts, red news, you will never be forced to question any of it. But you are forced to do that when you're living in a society where there's healthy dialogue. I've got um, one more question for you. So you said that you studied apologetics, which I find very fascinating, which is defending Christianity through reason and logic. And some people would say, argue, uh, those who are more secular would argue that uh, you aren't applying critical thinking if you are to uphold a faith that you can't really touch or feel. Sure. So can you give a little background on your study on apologetics and what led you to say this is? The truth for me. Yeah. So, oh, God, Dave. I said, good question. <laughs> yeah. So, actually, I have a book could be coming out next spring or be June uh, 2022 with Crossway on apologetics. So, you, if you are interested in that subject, I, it's a Absolutely. whole book that I wrote, so you can read it. Um, uh, what I will say is that most Christians um, they, uh, embrace Christianity uh, not because of what we would consider objective external reason and evidence, right? Most people, and I'm not saying none do, I'm saying most don't, most actually encounter some kind of spiritual reality. Say, wait a minute, wait a minute, I thought you were about reason and evidence. I said, yeah, I'm about that, but not only that, because if you believe that God actually exists and he can't interact with you at a spiritual level, right, then you have to, that, that includes, for example, and this is a sort of illustration then, um, imagine that, you know, we're in, we're all locked in a room uh, and you know we don't we don't know what's outside the room, and we're debating what's outside the room. We don't know. We don't know. But suddenly, you know, one of us comes. Someone comes up to me and says, "No, no, no, we're inside a prison." And I just heard from the guard. He says, "We're gonna be fine. We'll be allowed in a day." How do you know that? So, well, there's actually there's a, a little slot opened up, and I talked to the guard for a second. Well, the wait, what slot? They look. Look, the slot's closed now. We don't believe you're lying. Well, can they know he's lying? They can't know because they can't they can't access the guard anymore. He's gone. Or there's a, uh, if you've read the C.S. Lewis's book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, uh, Lucy goes into the wardrobe. Love and that book, by the way. Yeah. She, <laughs> she, no, she, she goes to the wardrobe. She meets the fontumness. She is there for hours having tea. She goes there twice for hours. And her she comes back, but she has no evidence. And her brother and sister are like, look, we can't believe you on the basis of this claim you make. Now, I by the way, I think they are right. They can't believe her on the basis of her experiences. But here's the question. Should she believe her? Should she say, no, that's right. I can't prove to you that I experienced this. So therefore I didn't experience it. No, she's justified in her experience because in believing her own senses. Well, if we believe that there is what Calvin called the census divinatus, that we can experience God at some level, just not, not subconsciously, but if we just know he's there somehow. And then by the way, this is very simplified. <laughs> I don't this in much more detail in the book. We have to be open to the possibility that there are other ways to get access to reality. And again, I'm, I'm not I'm not saying much about that. I'm not saying is it I'm saying there are dreams and visions. There there are I believe that not not me personally. I didn't have dreams and visions to become a Christian. Um, are, are there other things like answered prayer? Yes, absolutely. I believe in that. I'm not saying it's the only way. I'm just asking the atheist to be a little bit more open minded. If you want to, sh- I can 
give you the kind of evidence that you're looking for. So if the atheist says, well, give me some hard numbers, give me some facts, give me some, I can do that. And in my book, I talk about things like the argument from fine tuning, the Kalam cosmological argument, various traditional arguments for God's existence. But I'm also saying there's more to it than you're, you're, you're willing to, to allow. You're having a very narrow definition of reason and evidence. And ironically, at the beginning of the show, I said, people accuse me of being an enlightenment modernist rationalist. I'm saying, no, I'm a pre-modernist. <laughs> I'm appealing to a notion of, of human reason that is, that's beyond this very narrow understanding of the enlightenment and the logical positivists of the that 20th century. So anyway, here's, okay, here's, here's just one little teaser thing. Um, one really argument that there'll be a stone in your shoe, maybe if you're an atheist. Uh, very common argument is if God doesn't exist, morality doesn't exist. If God doesn't exist, there's no absolute objective standards of right and wrong. Okay. And people go back and forth on that. Here's a, a different argument. If God doesn't exist, the kind of God we find in the Bible who, who commands us to seek the truth, because the Bible's full of commands to seek wisdom, seek knowledge, pursue it like treasure, uh, pursue the truth. So if that kind of God does not exist, then we have no moral obligation to pursue the truth. We might do it for fun. We might do it for instrumental gain. Like it's good to know the truth so I can create medicine and heal people that are sick and I want to do that. So, but there's no, I don't have a moral obligation to pursue the truth, right? I can do it for instrumental reasons. Like maybe I want to cure world hunger. Maybe I want to develop technology, but okay. So that's, so if there's no God, then I don't, I'm not commanded by some moral, I don't have a moral obligation to seek the truth. So here's the question. To the atheist, if you come to me and say, you are a Christian, you should abandon your silly religious dogma and, and seek to know the truth of atheism. I would respond to them. I'd be, I'd be fair for me to say to, to them, okay, if, if God exists and I have a moral obligation to seek the truth, then I can see why I ought to seek the truth. But you're an atheist, right? So on what basis do you say I have an obligation to seek the truth? Because I'm happy as a Christian. I, I'm, I'm fulfilled. I'm happy. I have a hope for the future. I can, I can understand suffering. I can even embrace it knowing that God loves me. So I'm happy as I am, but you're urging me to abandon my beliefs that I'm comfortable with and to seek the truth. Well, why ought I do that? That's a moral command. Where's that coming from? They can't appeal to God. So there are various ways the atheists have tried to explain where moral imperatives come from, but they're complicated. And for reasons I won't go into, it becomes very hard to say why people ought to seek the truth if that kind of God doesn't exist. So it's very, it's paradoxical. The atheist doesn't have an objective reason to seek the truth, but Christians do. So it's, it's, it turns the tables a little bit and says, you justify why ought, I, I believe we should pursue the truth as a Christian, but why do you as an atheist? Yeah, that's interesting. I've got, I, David, unless you've got something, I've got, I've got one last question for you. David, do you have something else before I? It's all right. Well, okay. we'll continue that another yeah. time. <laughs> We've got a lot to, to follow up on. Sure. You said something in that explanation, though, that I wanted to push back on. Yeah. You said that, you know, you can't talk about um, with Christianity and there's things that you can't see. And so there's like a lived kind of spiritual experience, yeah. right? That, you know, you can't explain because you can't yeah. mm -hmm. see it. Isn't that kind of that what social justice is saying too? Yeah, so this is actually interesting because I actually agree. So I think, and this is going to sound strange, I think a lot of this critical social justice meta narrative it works so well, and this is because I'm a Christian, because it's a corruption or a twisting of Christian theology. You know, I believe Christian theology is true. I believe the Christian meta narrative is true. That's why it's compelling. 
because our hearts yearn for the truth in some sense. And because of that, it, it, it's, it, it meets our needs. It's meant to. Uh, again, Chesterton said, if I find a key that fits a lock, it was made by the lockmaker. You know, the key was made by the guy who made the lock. So if I find a religion that meets my religious strivings, it was made by the, if, I, if, the, if Christianity fits the lock of my heart, then, the, then Christianity was made by the, my heart maker, right? And there's something like that. So, so I think that the reason why critical social justice is successful is because it's taken Christian ideas like original sin, depravity, that's whiteness and patriarchy. It's taken redemption, atonement, that's doing the work, that's being better, that's you know, doing these uh, ritual cleansings from your whiteness. It's taken redemption and made it into material terms like, like equity and diversity. That's why it's successful. And lived experience then, there is a sense in which we can know certain things through lived experience, like, again, the reality of God's existence and even in some sense who he is, that, he, that he's there. Uh, the, the God, Paul talks about this in Romans chapter one, that he's a, a God of glory and power based on what he's made. But that's why, so I'm not, so again, I'm not poo-pooing the idea that lived experience can tell you the truth. I'm questioning whether it always does. It's like I said, Muslims will claim that their lived experience points to Islam, Christians to Christianity, uh, maybe some Jews to Judaism, Buddhists to Buddhism. So at the, and this is why in the public square then, when I, when I enter into dialogue with atheists or Muslims or agnostics, that's when I appeal to public evidence. So I don't go to a Muslim and say, you should be a Christian because I had a lived experience. Just like Lucy doesn't, Lucy can't really go to Peter and Susan and say, you should believe in Narnia because I met Fontumnus. Actually, in the book, she's kind of like, yeah, hmm, maybe, I, I don't know. But so in the public square, when I go to a Muslim, I say, look, I have my experience and you have yours. But in the public square, let's talk about public evidence now. But that's what critical social justice will not do. See, they want to come mm-hmm. with their lived experience and say, here's my lived experience. Now you bow to it. That's the difference. Whereas I, as a Christian, I say, yeah, absolutely. You know, I'm a Christian with my life experience. You're a, you're an atheist. You're a Jew. But here, when we meet to discuss policy, when we try to shape a craft of society together, we're going to p- appeal to reason and public evidence. Mm-hmm. So that, does that help? Uh, oh, it ha- that was a great sense. explanation. Okay, all right, good. Yes, yeah. Thank you so much. I mean, because I was kind of, when you were talking, I was chewing on that. That, that no, makes no, no, a lot no, of that's, sense. I'm glad. See, you're pushing back. This is what we need. We don't, <laughs> I don't want you, I don't want to be a talking head, just you just nodding along. Yes, yes, amen. You know, snap, 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 snap. I want some pushback. <laughs> well, and I appreciate that too. I mean, like in my faith, uh, you know, particularly I'm in a Presbyterian and we're, it, we are particularly known to be um, questioning. And so, uh, yeah, I, we're, we're, it, it's, it, it's, it's interesting to, mm-hmm. because there is that literal translation. And, and even within Christianity, we have our own like differences, right? And divisions and whatnot. I mean, that you've got your, your some face that if you don't believe the Bible, literally, you know, you're going to hell in a handbasket and other ones where you're supposed to be questioning. So mm-hmm. um, no, that was a very thoughtful response. And now I feel like oh. I can grasp it a little bit better. Buy my book. It's all in it. I'm, I'm I can't it's- wait. <laughs> no, I really can't wait. We're going to have to like, we're going to have to mention it in the podcast for sure. We'll bring you back too. Yeah. Great. Yeah, Absolutely. Enjoy it. Thank you for listening to this episode of Hold My Drink. Like or subscribe to the show and check out the show notes for links to source material and to our website where you can find what each of us is reading every week. Different news with different views. If you have a topic that you would like us to explore, drop us a line. And join us next week as we say hold my drink and the conversation gets real.